this uh, opportunity to learn. Uh, my wife and I uh, have been ministering together in this ministry for about uh, 40 years now, and uh, we celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary just last week, and uh, she still is glad to have me come home, so I'll be flying home to her. Uh, we could tell you a very romantic story about our courtship and marriage, but uh, we don't have time to do that. <laughs> uh, we, uh, I told you that my first wife died, I think I told you, uh, between my first and second year in seminary, and her husband was killed by a stroke of lightning uh, on a golf course, and uh, the Lord uh, led us together rather obviously. We had the uh, almost unanimous support of all of our friends. They were not at all surprised when... <laughs> We ended up together. They were just waiting for it to happen, and they were cheering us on all the way. So, and uh, many other things, but whatever. We're uh, very, very grateful for God's uh, allowing us to be involved with Him uh, still at, at our age. Okay, our topic for this period is the reality of warfare today. I started to say when I introduced this last uh, the other period yesterday when it wasn't really up. Uh, this is one of those things where you can go many ways, I suppose, to uh, talk about that. But I'm going to look at the offensive and, and defensive uh, postures of warfare and examine some of the ways in which we see the warfare going on today. Uh, Satan, as we've noted, is the roaring lion. He is, and there are just many uh, warfare metaphors used in the scriptures about uh, what's happening in our lives. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 11 and 12 that he's not ignorant of Satan's devices. Unfortunately, many people are ignorant of his devices. And one of the first laws of warfare is know your enemy. I was in the Second World War and our first big combat assignment was right up against what was known as the Siegfried Line. Those were the underground defense system of uh, Germans along the German-French border. And knowing that the Siegfried Line was there dictated to us how we conducted ourselves as an Allied army. Because looking over the landscape, you didn't see anything that looked like uh, fortresses or anything like that, but uh, they were all camouflaged. But because we knew that, we didn't send an infantry squad out with rifles and hand grenades against an, a farmhouse over there, because that was simply a camouflage for a reinforced concrete bunker housing and maybe an 8-inch howitzer cannon, and you just don't send rifles after that kind of a, an enemy. So you need to know the enemy. More recently in the first Persian Gulf War, uh, I remember seeing on television all the defense layout of the Iraqi army. We knew where their Revolutionary Guard was, where this unit and that unit, and where there were tank traps, and where there were minefields, and and because we knew that, we could outflank them and, and the war was over in a few days rather than uh, the philosophy that some people have. Uh, we don't need to worry about the enemy. Christ has defeated him. We just need to, to, to uh, attack him. And see, and if, if the American or the Allied armies had said, look, we've got the biggest, best army in the world. We've got the best uh, ammunition, best, smartest bombs and all this. And we'll just launch right through the middle and just wipe them out. There would have been so much unnecessary loss of life, so much suffering that uh, could be avoided if you knew the enemy. And so often when people try to just launch against the enemy without understanding how he operates and what his tactics are, 
there is just a great deal of unnecessary suffering. In our early ministry, we did some of that. And, uh, you know, we just wouldn't go back to that for anything. Uh, back in those days, the tendency was if a demon manifests, you immediately dealt with the demon. Today, if a demon manifests, I quiet the demon down so he can deal with the person because the person has to take away ground before you're going to be able to get victory over the demon. So uh, you have to know their tactics. And, and if you talk to them too much, they'll lead you down all kinds of rabbit trails and and you'll end up spending hours and hours and hours. And there's a, well, Scott Peck's first book, uh, People the Lie, he uh, is, on the one hand, it's a very, very interesting book. On the other hand, uh, he says, when you go into this, you need to be prepared for 18-hour marathon sessions. And I say, no, 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 you, you don't. You need that kind of thing, you know. It's true that sometimes you have to stay with it until you get victory, but uh, you just don't fight demons for 18 hours. You deal with truce issues, and once you do, the getting rid of the demons is not that big an issue. So uh, that's not to say you never have to deal with the demon, but it is to say that you need to know his enemies, uh, know his tactics. So we want to look at uh, some of those and uh, try to learn from them. So, first of all, we'll look at uh, the Christian under attack from this enemy, and he attacks us in the physical realm. We know that that happens from the scriptures. Uh, in the Gospel of Mark, I think at least a third of the healing miracles of Jesus involve casting out demons from people. The daughter of Abraham, whom Satan is bound 18 years, the Gadarene demoniac with his supernatural strength, uh, the boy uh, at the foot of the Mount of uh, Transfiguration fell on the ground, wallowing and foaming. Uh, uh, when the demon was cast out, a dumb man spoke. In another case, a blind and, and mute man uh, could see and speak. Uh, another case uh, says that he went around healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Uh, just these indications are that Satan is uh, definitely in doing this. And so he can... Uh, attack us that way. And one of the early experiences I remember was reading about a missionary who had come home from Columbia, South America, because she was so physically debilitated. Uh, probably today it would, it would have been called uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, but she went to the best clinics around the country and nobody was able to help her. And finally, uh, one day, she had just gotten so discouraged and depressed, she was decided to quit trying. And it was, she couldn't read the Bible and pray. They just had so much mental interference. She was going to put her Bible on the shelf and just quit. And God said to her, why don't you fast and pray and cast them out? And no one had suggested to her that she might have demonic oppression behind her problem, even though she had been in a part of the world where uh, spirit activity was uh, just the norm. So she didn't know too much about that, and she took a card, like a three by five card, and wrote on it, I command you in the name of Jesus, who died for me on Calvary, to leave me, and name three spirits that God put in her mind. I don't know how she knew them other than that God showed it to her. And uh, as soon as she read that command the first time, she could read her Bible like she hadn't been able to, and she could pray. She went through the day fasting and praying and reading this every 30 minutes. Now, this is a standard procedure. There is no standard procedure. Uh, God smiles a lot when we don't do things, you know, exactly by the numbers sort of thing. But she was trusting, and by the end of the day, she said, "I." She felt so good, she was afraid. She hadn't felt that good for so long. She 
wasn't sure that she could really trust this and said it was, took a week before she was convinced that she was well. And she went on to lead a, a normal, productive Christian life. Well, uh, those kinds of things do happen, and I'm afraid that many, many missionaries have been invalided home from the mission field, as we say, with physical problems that have a spiritual dimension to them. I'm not saying all physical problems have spiritual causes, but uh, I know of, of other cases where people have had to come home. One lady had to come home to Canada because she was depressed and having pains that actually moved around in her body and... Uh, in her case, she had been uh, dowsing for well sites out in Africa, thinking she was doing them a, a favor. And uh, when she got home, she read in a book that uh, this was really looking to the wrong source for information and said, if you don't believe that, go out where you know there's water and you know it will work. And when that wand starts to pump in your hand, just say, if this is from God, I accept it. If it's not from God, I reject it. And so she tried that, and sure enough, the wand started pumping, and she said those words, and it stopped and wouldn't go again. And she renounced this, and uh, her pains went away, and her depression left, and she was able to go back to Africa. But Satan, you know, was saying, you've uh, looked to me for power, now I'm going to claim power in your life. So you have to be careful that you don't miss those kinds of things. A uh, friend of mine in... in uh, Caps Crusade for Christ, uh, a missionary, and uh, they uh, had their, I think I told you the story about the bubbling diarrhea, and, uh, you know, that was a clearly demonic thing. Another case, the same same couple were down in Mexico in a, a Bible uh, Institute program, and in the room right next to where they were was a young pastor and his wife with a small child who just cried incessantly. Didn't just whimper, but just just cried. Just seemed like day and night this child was crying. And finally, the missionary went over and said, "Could I pray for your child?" And yeah, please. So he just said, "Satan, if you're behind the crying of this child, I command you to leave her in Jesus' name." And the baby stopped crying. And the couple said, "You know, he does this, or she does this every time we go to one of these institutes. Though uh, so Satan will." will do anything he can to interfere with God's purposes. Well, many stories like that could be told. Uh, in the physical realm, uh, so they can fix physical bodies, demons can also intensify the bodily appetites to a compulsive level. Uh, eating disorders, for example, I think frequently have a demonic component to them if they're not entirely demonic. We were in Norway and dealing with a very beautiful Norwegian young lady who was anorexic, and she was just not eating in any normal way, and her parents were quite frantic about this daughter. So we walked her through the Steps to Freedom, and uh, by the time we finished that, uh, I had to return to teaching in a seminar we were doing there, and my wife finished this up, and uh, they got through the, the steps, and uh, see, she said, I, you know, I, I do feel different, but... Uh, um, you know, sense that there might be something left. So Eleanor said, uh, could I just test and see if there is anything demonic still there? And they, she and her friend said yes. So Eleanor said, you know, I command any evil spirit that's still claiming ground in this young lady to tell her uh, what the ground is. And she started to cry because she became aware of a demonic presence and uh, the demon uh, said, and the girl told us, she believes the lies. 
And she admitted that she was hearing this voice telling her she was fat and needed to lose weight to be a beautiful person. And she renounced the lie, and the demon was gone, and she was free. And before we left there, her parents came and just thanked us profusely, said our daughter's eating normally for the first time in months. Uh, there's a gal here in Texas who some years ago was anorexic, the daughter of a well-known physician. They had spent, I'm told, uh, you know, like $150,000 on psychological cures for her, even in Christian clinics, and had not gotten help. And uh, Dr. Anderson spent an afternoon with her and dealt with the spiritual issues in her life, and she was free. And uh, her physician father said, you better believe Mittermeier is going to hear about this. I shouldn't say names, should I? But uh, they had paid them several thousand dollars for treatment and, and had not uh, found resolution. And for no pay and no money, uh, there was a spiritual answer. So uh, we need to understand that that uh, is certainly a possibility. I've seen some strange... Uh, uh, manifestations of this, uh, wife of uh, a German student at the uh, seminary uh, had a compulsion to get up every two hours during the night and eat. And uh, we discovered some ancestral things there that uh, were behind that, which when she dealt with and renounced, uh, that compulsion uh, left her as well. Well, the other another area in which this happens is... Uh, hmm, got, there we go. They can intensify the bodily appetites uh, to a compulsive level. Well, that's what we were just talking about, wasn't it? And the, but the second area of this is the sexual area. And I just believe this is the devil's playground. He just uh, gets so much mileage out of this. And there are several reasons why uh, this would be true. Uh, first of all... Uh, uh, the sexual relationship between a husband and wife is said in the scriptures to be a model of the intimacy between Christ and the church. Uh, and Satan loves to, to negate that, uh, that message to counter the effectiveness of a really effective marriage when people see people committed to each other, uh, durable, lasting uh, relationships. Uh, they want to know how you do that. But uh, when... Either party isn't faithful. Satan can say, see, the church is full of hypocrites. They don't, they're not really committed or you can't depend on God. He's not going to be there for you. And so he's, he's always trying to mess up that message. A second uh, reason he operates particularly in this area is that it opens the door in a unique, unique way into the family. Uh, one family had a little boy who wanted to be a girl. He wanted to wear girls' clothes and he talked about having a woman's body. Now, you know, five-year-old boys don't don't do that. They don't want girl dust on them, kind of thing. You know, and uh, they uh, our parents were obviously concerned about this. Uh, I've had people call me about that very problem, and I always say I need to talk to the parents first. And when the father in this family dealt with his sexual sin, the little boy never mentioned being a girl again. It wasn't a boy's problem; it was the father's problem, and the door was opened by the sexual sin of the father into the family. There was a little girl who had a compulsion to look at men's genital organ area, particularly her father's, and she wasn't a bad girl. She just had this strange compulsion. Again, when the father admitted and dealt with his sexual sin, that disappeared and uh, the compulsion was gone. So it can open the door and uh, 
we need to understand that, that Satan will take advantage of any doors that are open not only into your life, but into the life of uh, your family. That seems to be particularly true of, of a father who is the, like the head of the house. And as, it's like he's saying to Satan, come in, you know, I'm opening the door to you by my sin. Now, any sin can do that, but sexual sin is a little more dramatic and uh, we tend to notice it perhaps a little bit more. Uh, a third uh, reason is that, uh, as the scriptures tell us very clearly, when you have sex with another person, you become one flesh. You establish, a, call it a soul tie, a, a spiritual, emotional bond with that person. Uh, an extreme example of this uh, from up our way in Indiana, a Christian couple uh, just weren't making it, and they were had been in Christian marriage counseling for two years. The church they were a part of was a, a large church that had its own counseling center, so it was all being done in the context of the church, but they were getting nowhere and were separated and preparing for divorce. Someone then said to them, why don't you see if there's something demonic involved? And so they came to a friend of mine up there, and uh, he listened to their story, and then the Lord led him to ask them, uh, what about your sex life outside of marriage? And the woman said, oh, I'll have to talk to you alone about that. Two staff people had come with them, and he had a prayer partner or two there praying for them. So they went in the next room, and uh, this woman said, I probably had sex with 200 men. And he said, here's a piece of paper. Start writing down their names. We're going to need to break the, the tie, the bond you established with each one of those, those men. She said, oh, I couldn't remember them all. He said, if you need to break the ties, God will bring them to your mind. Just start writing. Uh, and uh, she wrote 240, 240. Uh, they went through them one at a time, asked God to break the bond, declared the bond broken based on the work of Christ. Uh, he has them actually ask God to bring back the part of them that they left with that other person and send back the part of that person in them to the other person so that there's that tie is completely broken. And uh, the man came in, he made a list of 40 women. Uh, this is an extreme case, but uh, the principle is the same, whether it's one or, or 40 or 240, the principle is the same, that uh, sex means that you're not really quite a whole person anymore because you've left part of yourself with that other person. You've, you've established oneness with that person. And uh, so they got this all straightened out. They, there were some demons that, that manifested in the process and admitted that that was their ground, but getting rid of them now was no problem because they'd taken away the ground. And uh, within a few minutes, they were done with dealing with demons. They went home, were reconciled within a few days, uh, were living together, and as far as I know, you know, for 10, 12 years, they've been having a successful Christian marriage. So uh, in the Steps of Freedom, in Step 6, this is one of the things that uh, we always lead people to do, is to break those bonds that they've established. I would urge you to include premarital sex, even if they get married, they've established a sinful bond between themselves before they establish a holy bond. And all of the research tells us that people who live together before marriage have a less satisfying sex life after marriage than those who wait until marriage for sexual union. And the world doesn't understand that, but uh, from the biblical standpoint, it's, it's perfectly understandable that they've just established a sinful bond and God can't bless that in the way he does when you do it his way. So do it your way and you'll be responsible for the results. But do it God's way and God will be responsible for the results. So this is just a, a very, very critical area. I would also include 
where you do everything but have actual intercourse, where you're the heavy petting kind of thing, because there is a, a, a oneness there. The Bible says if you've done it in your mind, you've done it. Uh, in Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that, and the demon knows that, and he will claim that as ground. So we have them reject any, uh, renounce any kind of sexual union. I'm uh, just, it's discouraging to how many men, uh, uh, renounce the, the oral sex that they've had with numerous uh, women in the past. And uh, the world tends to, like uh, President Clinton, say that's not sex. Uh, let me tell you, you know, that it is, that that's uh, in the eyes of the devil. Uh, you've just opened the door wide into your life. And this has become almost a rite of passage, even with junior high kids in some places. Uh, they they have parties where they, they, they do it, and it's uh, it's shocking and you just really, really need to be thorough when you deal with this uh, issue with people. Uh, demons can use physical objects as the medium through which to affect people. Now, this is a, a controversial area, at least. I've been criticized in print for teaching this, but I just believe that it's, it's very clear that uh, whenever you look to an object for power... The only place the power is going to come from is from, from a demon. The, the Bible says that no objects have power in themselves, not even idols. The, the Bible treats, as idols, treats idols with the most sarcastic, uh, derisive kind of, of language that it uses for anything. Uh, scarecrow scare in a melon patch, you know, calls him, you know, you cut down a tree and you, Use some of the tree to burn and cook your food and you carve the rest of it and put some paint and gold on it and make it a god and then you have to nail it down because it can't stand up by itself and, and if there's a storm or something you've got to rescue your god because your god can't rescue you and, you know, it just treats it with derision. But it also says what they offer in sacrifice to idols, they offer to demons. Deuteronomy 32, 1 Corinthians 10, 19, 20, uh, very clear statements. Uh, that, that that is true. Now, uh, Satan is always looking, therefore, for ways to to get to us. I see three classes of objects that we need to identify. Uh, your notes, I think, say two classes, but I uh, want to ask you to add a third one to those notes. Uh, the first one is, as indicated there, things that are made for a, a spiritual or occult purpose, like idols, fetishes, good luck charms, symbols. Uh, people bring, uh, teenagers bring these rock albums into the, into homes with satanic symbols on them. And then they wonder why things begin to go wrong in the home. I had a man who was an executive in the Baptist, in a Baptist mission society, and some friends of his daughter brought this kind of uh, music into their home, and they began to actually hear voices coming out of that room. And one morning he got up early, was praying about it, and and heard voices coming out of the room where those uh, albums were complaining about him praying and taking authority over them. And uh, they obviously got rid of them. But uh, anything that is has a spiritual meaning built into it, you'd simply get rid of. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, 25 and 26 say, The idols of their gods you are to burn in the fire. Do not covet the gold and silver on them. Do not take it for yourself. Now, don't ask how much it's worth. Can I convert this into money? If it's an idol, if it's uh, been built for that purpose, 
just get rid of it. Don't uh, take it for yourself, or you will be seduced by it. Utterly abhor and detest it. Do not bring a detestable thing into your house, or you, like it, will be set apart for destruction. Utterly abhor and detest it, for it is set apart for destruction. Now, those are the clear guidelines that God gave to his people, and uh, I see no reason to think that they have changed today. I know a case where a pastor and his wife were given the use of a condominium for a vacation, and they were really, really looking forward to this time of relaxation. But when he got there and unpacked, and he sat down, he couldn't relax. He said, there's got to be something in this place, you know, I, I just can't relax. So they began to look around, and up on the shelf they found an, an idol to the God of success, a little prayer on the back of it to the God of success. And they said, this this must be it, and they wrapped it up, and they couldn't destroy it because they didn't own it. They, somebody else's property, but uh, he, they put it outside the condo and uh, sat down and relaxed and enjoyed their vacation. When they got home, the owner of the condo said, well, how did things go? And said, well, after the first couple of hours, it was great. He said, wasn't that idol on the shelf? We've noticed something different about that place since we brought it in there. So... Just my counsel to you is to ask God to show you anything in your home or the homes of your clients, uh, your counselees, that uh, you need to get rid of. When we came back from Africa, we brought numerous uh, curios, uh, and many of the things we brought were not tourist items. They were right out of the village. We had a, a handmade xylophone with wooden and gourds under it and uh, a drum that was used in village uh, ceremonies. We actually had a, a, a shrine in which when somebody died, they put a stone. And they're, they're, in their language, they would say when somebody dies, he dropped a stone. So they'd put a stone in there and then they'd offer sacrifices to the gods for the spirits of the dead. And, and we had that in our home. Now, I have to say, we didn't sense any demonic presence to ourselves, but other people coming to our home did. And uh, so we ultimately got rid of anything like that. Uh, I've traveled in 56, seven countries in the world, and and uh, it's not that we don't have anything from these other countries. I'm not saying anything foreign is bad, but you will not find any idols or fetishes or Buddhas or or symbols, uh, even the yin-yang symbol or things like that from the Orient we just we just don't have those. Uh, so that's my best counsel about uh, these physical objects. Now, the second kind of physical object are neutral objects that were not made for a spiritual purpose, don't have any meaning built into them that demons may attach themselves to. This would be like houses or buildings. Call from a medical clinic out west of Chicago saying, you know, we've been getting a lot of calls about what's going on in our building, and at first we just thought it was a few cranks or kind of half-crazy people who didn't know what was going on, but we're just getting too many of these. We can't ignore it anymore, that lights go on and off at night and shades go up and down and things, strange things going on in the building, and it only happens in the old part of the, the building. They had built an addition onto it, and nothing happened in the new part of the building, only in the old part. Wherever there has been... Violence, murder, suicide, abortion, anything of that nature, wherever there has been occult ceremonies, satanic ceremonies, seances, and things like this, the demons seem to claim a right to, to remain there. My wife was participating in a, a housewalk out west of Chicago, 
where they, uh, in one of these more upscale neighborhoods, uh, had decorated their homes for Christmas and allowed people to come in and walk through them. But one of the homes was a very old one, 150 years old, and uh, been all refurbished and decorated up. But my wife walked into that and walked into one room, and she said, Whoa, there's something going on in here. And uh, before they left, she felt she needed to talk to the owner, so she said, Are you a, a believer in the Lord? And he said, Yes, I am. Uh, said, Well, I just need to tell you that uh, I just sense that there's a spirit in this room. Oh, he said, everybody knows this house is haunted. Uh, and they were just sort of assuming that it was a, a friendly ghost and they could live with a ghost. Uh, and it turned out that the, this home uh, had been apparently used as a, a morgue in a war where they had brought uh, the dead bodies that were killed in a, in a battle. And uh, wherever there is that kind of, of death or, or violence, uh, I got a paper from a, Sudan Interior Missionary said that a friend of his was building a retirement home in New Guinea, in uh, New Zealand. And as they were building the home, a friend in church said to them, you know, I was out visiting your new home site and I just sensed that there's something wrong with that land. And uh, they, their thought was, what could be wrong with land? Land is land, you know, but uh, they said, let's meet and pray about it. So they met on the land. They walked the perimeter of the property a couple of times and began to pray and ask God about this. And God showed them the words of a Maori curse on that land. And when they realized there was a curse on the property, they claimed the breaking of the curse through the power of the cross and said amen. And two birds landed in front of them. And that wouldn't have been too unusual because it was a semi-rural area with considerable wildlife around. But the workman building the house said, you know, we've never seen a bird on this property or an animal. We'll eat lunch and throw out scraps of food, and even at night they don't come and get it. It's still there in the morning. But when they broke the curse, the animals came back. Well, that piqued their interest, so they began to do some research and discovered that 150 years before, there had been a massacre of Maori tribesmen on that piece of property. And wherever you have that kind of violence, you you will have this uh, lingering demonic uh, uh, presence. Uh, there's a place out in the western United States where there, an Indian reservation was known as the most violent uh, reservation in the country. It had the highest incidence of violent crime. And uh, it right on the edge of the property was a place called Massacre Canyon. And it goes back to a time in an Indian war when one tribe had massacred a group of mother, women and, and children who got trapped in this canyon in an intertribal fight. And uh, so it had acquired that name. A group of Christians, including representatives of these two Indian tribes, went there to the canyon, had a, a service of praise to God, and claimed the breaking of any curse on that place, uh, any claim that the spirits made to it. And then they went on the... Indian Reservation and did the same thing. And from that day on, there wasn't, for five years, there wasn't another uh, homicide on the Indian Reservation. And when it did happen, it was by somebody from off the reservation, not from somebody on the reservation. Uh, now, you know, the, the unbelievers have difficulty with these kinds of, uh, they say they're anecdotal stories and they don't prove anything, but let me tell you, if you were there, and you were living in that, you would certainly uh, know that there was something real going on there. 
so uh, they will claim even the ground. And therefore, I urge you to, uh, when you dedicate and cleanse your homes, to include the land that it's built on. Uh, going back to Indian days or anything like this, there are places around Fort Wayne that I know. There's one place where the American soldiers brought in a whole bunch of liquor uh, where the Indians would find it. And when the Indians found it and got drunk, they came in and massacred the Indians. Well, you just know that there's probably going to be a spiritual stronghold on, on that piece of property. So, uh, don't uh, give uh, Satan that kind of ground, but uh, take care of it. Uh, then the third uh, type of object would be a Christian object that has been used as a power object. Uh, this is a little different than the first. The first one is an object that is is made with a non-Christian power uh, behind it. But I first uh, encountered this in a case in, I think it was down in Australia, where some Christians going through a house uh, came into one room and sensed this uh, spirit presence there, and on the wall was a carved head of Christ. And they focused on that, and that seemed to be the center of this power. And the people then told them that the owners, the previous owners, had thought that if you prayed to that head of Christ, you would be more apt to get answers to your prayers than if you just prayed directly to God. Now, that turns it into a power object. That object becomes, in a sense, more powerful than God himself. And when you ascribe that kind of a power to an object, the only place the power is going to come from is from demons. So they decided they'd better destroy it, and they took it out, put it in a brick barbecue pit to burn it, and when they lit fire under it, it exploded and blew the brick barbecue pit apart. Uh, the last hurrah of, of the demons, uh, acknowledging that they were there uh, and that they were going to have a, a last show of their power. Uh, the Roman Catholics, of course, provide so many, many objects that become power objects. I know of a case where a man was struggling with some uh, depression kind of problem and he just they couldn't seem to find anything wrong. And finally, my friend said to him, do you happen to have a prayer to St. Jude? And he took his Bible and opened it up, and there was a prayer to St. Jude. He said, my mother gave me this and told me to never take it out of my Bible, that it would give me good luck. Well, that wasn't a prayer at all. It was a power object that was going to give him good luck. But it didn't. God doesn't honor power objects. God honors faith and our intimacy with him. And he got rid of his prayer of St. Jude, and his problem then could be resolved. So, you know, be cautious. Uh, this, this is a touchy subject, particularly for people who have been into Roman Catholicism. I know of a case where people were having uh, nightmares and uh, told to search their room for such objects, and the only thing they could find was a crucifix that had come down uh, through the family, and it was sort of an heirloom. But when they took that out of the room, their their uh, uh, nightmares uh, ceased. And the crucifix, you know, it's it's one of these uh, difficult things to handle. But there is a sense in which it really is is a strategy of Satan to keep Christ on the cross and not resurrected. Uh, and and the church, to to much even of the non-Catholic church. Uh, tends to focus on the, the crucifixion more than the resurrection. But in the first 200 years of the church or so, it was the resurrection that was the key thing. They were called into question for preaching the resurrection. You know, Paul says, if Christ be not raised, we're miserable. You know, 
Hey, we just got another martyr on our hands, but you know the resurrection is what really gives us this new life, and that's that's what this identity in Christ is all about. He raised us with Christ and seated with Him in the heavens. And uh, when you just worship Christ on the cross, you're you may be conscious of sin and and some of the redemption issues, but you're not going to get ever to this new life in Christ that comes only through the resurrection. So, uh, you know, as as delicate as that is in in many ways, uh, who can be against Christ on the cross? You know, that's the, the center of the cross is the center of our message. Uh, it really is, is only part of the center of our message because the resurrection is really an essential part of it. And so uh, people uh, get attached to these kinds of things and they become power objects to them, good luck objects. I was counseling a man one day and talking about this, I knew he, he was, uh, at the time, I think, even a practicing Roman Catholic, and I said, you know, things like scapulars and charms, and he reached up and pulled the scapular out of that he was wearing around his neck. And, you know, these are power objects. They're good luck charms. And God doesn't, object, doesn't honor power objects. He rewards uh, and honors our faith. So, uh, many things could be said about uh, uh, physical objects. Uh, attacks in the spiritual realm, well, demons will always try to subvert the spiritual life of God's people, and much of what you hear in this course will be uh, elucidating that, and I'm not going to spend uh, uh, further time discussing it now, only to, to say that this is an area where you have to expect attack. He's always going to attack the character of God and your character as the child of God, and the minute you have these doubts about the character of God, uh, you need to be very honest about them and deal with them because Satan will build a stronghold very quickly about that. Uh, doubt of salvation is a common one, and as I think I said the other day, you just need to nail that down and not allow Satan to use it uh, against you. Uh, you I, I've run into missionary. I ran into a missionary in Africa who had translated the New Testament into a tribal language over there who couldn't affirm his salvation. You know, I talked and talked with him, and he finally said, I asked him where he was on my diagram, and he said, well, maybe here. And he pointed to the saved side of the cross. And I said, good. And if a child of God, then a joint heir with Christ. And he said, well, maybe here. And he pointed to the unsaved side of the cross. Just amazing that a man at that age was not affirming his salvation. So... Don't be surprised if you run into this in strange places. Uh, some people are embarrassed to talk about it, but uh, you need to give them a safe place where they can and hope that they'll handle it. Ignorance of our privileges in Christ, what it means to be in Christ, as we talked about this morning. Ignorance of Satan's tactics. Uh, these notes may not be in your note, but they're under the, the general topic of uh, this tax in the spiritual realm. Keep us from prayer and from witness. Tempt us to seek power and information from sources other than God. These are fairly common kinds of things that uh, you are familiar with. So I want to move on to talking about some other things that are maybe not so much so. Attacks in the mental and emotional areas. And this, of course, is a book-length topic, and we can only touch on it. But I just want to say two things or give you two principles here. And these are also not in your notes. I've amended this since I first submitted these notes. Uh, the first principle is that all our thoughts are not really ours. 
Satan can put thoughts into our minds. Now that's a, that's a whole new thought to many, many people. They just assume that if there's a thought in your mind, it's your thought. I told you in a previous session about the doctoral student at the seminary who had the perverted sexual thoughts in his mind when he tried to pray. Uh, and, you know, he was saying, what's wrong with me? He was assuming that, that having that thought meant that it had to be his thought. Now, uh, I know that uh, in the last period uh, or two, Dr. Bubeck has been talking about the flesh, but let me, let me give you just a little variation on that. Uh, the Bible is full of, uh, not full, but the Bible has many words which are essentially neutral words or good words which can be used in a bad way or in a wrong way on either side. One of those is uh, is the word epithumia, which is translated uh, lust in many of the New Testament passages. But epithumia is not a bad thing per se, because Jesus said, with epithumia, I have epithumiaed. He used both the verb and the noun form of the word to say, with deep desire, I have desired to eat this last Passover with you, with his disciples. Now, if Jesus had that deep desire, it can't be something bad. So the epithumia per se is not bad. And, and what lust is, is essentially my natural needs, my need for love, for security, for significance, my sexual needs, my need for food, and, and so on, to meet those in the wrong way. And Satan has just, from the Garden of Eden on, been suggesting all of the wrong ways to meet these needs, and they've got institutionalized in our culture, which the Bible calls the world, and we've lived in the world and allowed the world to dictate to us in these areas so long that we now see the epithumia, the lust, as something bad. But the other side of it is that the Buddhists say that all suffering is caused by desire and the way to get rid of suffering is to get rid of desire, not have any desires. But desire is a good thing. And there's a word that's maybe even a little stronger that's translated uh, passions in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, it always has a negative connotation that we put our passions on the wrong things, but it's the Greek word hedone from which we get the English word hedonism. But in, in the larger Greek literature, it can be the passion for truth, the passion for beauty, a passion for God, a good thing. We ought to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's, that's a passionate relationship. Nothing wrong with passion. The problem is that we let Satan suggest wrong things to attach our passions to, and it becomes a bad thing. So I have a philosophy of life that says the Christian life is the exciting process of trying to keep your balance. That God created the world good, and all of the things that, that He has ordained for us are here in this, this creation of God, but Satan is perverting what is good. He's not a creator, so he can't create evil out of nothing. He has to take what God has ordained and twist it in order to make evil, but he does it this way and this way. And then he says, well, oh, isn't that awful? You'd ought to be over here. And we go from one swing of the pendulum to the other swing of the pendulum, you know, uh, this law thing, you know, license on one side or legalism on the other side. We can't seem to get this into balance where we submit to the law out of love rather than out of legalism or 
rebelling against it, so we just don't want anything to do with law anymore. Law, law wasn't outlawed in the New Testament. Uh, we are free within the limits of God's law. You know, what we've been saying is do things God's way and God will be responsible for the results. I'm, we're saying that God has established these parameters for our lives and we need to accept them. But uh, our modern generation says authority is a bad thing. As authority goes up, freedom goes down. Freedom goes up, authority has to go down. Is that true? Dead lie. Satan's lie. The truth will make you free. Is truth authoritative? You better believe. If it's true, it's true. And there's no waffle if it's really true. And it's the truth that makes us free. Now, we accept that freely in the physical realm. We know that the law of gravity is the law of gravity. Falling objects accelerate at a rate of 32 feet per second per second. And you jump off the roof and say, I don't believe in the law. I know this authority business. I have news for you. You won't break the law. You may break something else, but it won't be the law of gravity. And somehow we, we think that uh, in the spiritual realm there are no laws. You get news for you. You don't break God's laws. You break yourself on God's laws. And uh, there are so many, in, even in the church today, they don't want anything to do with law. You know, I just think we need to understand that uh, we have a whole new relationship to the law. The law is a guide to wisdom, and our, our love now wants to do things God's way, and we readily submit to the authority of God. And authority isn't a bad thing, it's a very good thing. But our culture is saying, well, I, I was counseling a woman one day, and I said to her, you know, you don't have to be out leading a protest march in order to be in rebellion against authority. You just have to be saying, nobody's going to tell me what to do. She said, I just said that to my husband yesterday. And her husband was an attorney. Well, uh, won't get, uh, I'm getting far afield here, but uh, Satan will, will put these thoughts into our minds and we have to make sure that we test, test them all. Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. One of the most important things you will ever learn to do as a Christian. A second principle is that our emotions are only as valid as the truth they're based on or on the, the, the truth of the thoughts they're based on. Uh, emotions are very real, no matter what they're based on, but they may not need to be there at all. Now, for example, if uh, you're afraid of snakes... You're probably not feeling any fear right now, are you? Because you don't see any snakes. But if you'd look down on the floor, or be, use a real-life illustration, we were sitting in a um, palm branch shelter to create a little shade out in Africa to have our field conference as missionaries, and all of a sudden a black snake fell out of those down on somebody's lap and started slithering around. You know, right away the, the fear quotient just went right up to the sky. So, because the snake was present. But if the snake isn't present, you don't feel the fear. On the other hand, uh, fear is, is uh, generated by power and proximity. So, if it's not near, you don't feel it. Or if it's present but not powerful, you don't feel it. But if you look down on the floor and saw a snake coiled up down there, you know, the fear object, the fear would go up real quick, wouldn't it? But if you look a second time and you discover it's a plastic snake, you know, the fear comes down at least a little ways, you know, because it's not powerful. Well, so you have to ask what's true about this. Is is this fear object uh, a valid fear object for me? Now, some are. You, know, you need to be afraid of fire. Uh, you need to be afraid of, of uh, 
uh, things that are going to produce imminent danger uh, to your body, uh, that's a, a healthy kind of fear, and you can act on it to protect yourself. But so many of the fears we have are, are really not based on truth, and or not just fears, but any emotion. The, the anger you feel when somebody says something that you don't like, the, the uh, emotional response husbands and wives have to each other when they say something that the other person doesn't interpret the way you meant it or or whatever, and uh, when my wife first and I first began to to practice this, asking the truth questions about our reactions, it was very interesting because we both come from rather insecure uh, backgrounds in the sense of having inferior, a lot of inferiority feelings, and uh, uh, Eleanor was particularly insecure because, you know, I have four earned degrees, she doesn't have any, uh, she's a valedictorian of her class and very intelligent and so we're so credential oriented that we assume that if you got degrees that makes you somebody special rather than somebody who doesn't and so you know I had to work at at building that relationship but uh, when we began to have these negative reactions to each other which good people can have uh, and began to ask the truth questions we could just see each other doing this and instead of responding out of the the emotional feeling that you have, uh, you first ask the truth questions and suddenly the emotion comes down and you can approach it at a whole different level. Now that may sound a little simplistic, but uh, I, I think it's an extremely important uh, truth to, uh, to work on because emotions are so powerful. We tend to do most of what we do on an emotional level. Uh, our thoughts generate emotions and the emotions prompt action. <coughs> And so it's important that we learn to control those emotions. Now, please don't hear me say that emotions are bad. You know, emotions are, are, you can't be normal and not have emotions. If you don't feel, then there's something wrong with you. People who have been through extreme abuse. We had one lady who'd been through satanic ritual abuse, and she would never cry. She could talk about this awful, awful stuff and never shed a tear. And when the day came, the tears began to trickle down her face. We knew that she was now getting in touch with reality and was able to say truth about things in a way that she had never had before. So, you know, we're not trying to stamp out emotions or in any way put them down, but we do need to ask the truth questions about them. So that's uh, just a, a very, very important principle uh, to understand in, in working on people. He can attack social relationships. I think he especially fights a marriage uh, in any way he can. Uh, now let's look at, uh, I'm going to do this quickly because I know that there are other uh, segments coming up in other uh, cla other lectures that will deal with ground for attack, but ancestral sin is one of them, and there's, I, I think, a whole session on ancestral sin. Let me just say that I see the principle in ancestral sin as being the consequences of sin. It's... Uh, there is a kind of consequence of sin that is not passed on. The commandment says, pass the sins of the parents to the children, third and fourth generation. I believe the Bible clearly teaches that guilt is not passed on. Everyone dies for their own sin. Child never is spiritually, uh, dies spiritually before God because of what the parents did, only for what they do. They may be doing what they're doing because of what they learn from the parents, and that's the issue. And that's what makes sin so awful that it has consequences. So there are problems that are passed on. Physical problems, for example. 
drug-abusing parents may produce a drug-dependent child or a defective uh, body in the child through no fault of the child whatsoever, but the consequences of the parent's sin is passed on to the child. And those kinds of things can even get into the genetic line and be passed down to future generations. Uh, disease, malformed body, addiction, profligacy, intemperance, all these kinds of things. Idleness may be pushing the physical side of it a little far, but uh, uh, example is another way in which they're passed on. That is to say that children who live in a sinful environment simply learn sinful ways, and they tend to repeat them. So the sin, the consequences of the parents' sin is that the children repeat what the parents do, and that's just as doesn't really need any illustration to uh, to understand that. The area that uh, well, there are some some illustrations, but uh, you would you could make your own list there very easily. The area where people somehow want to believe that there is no passing on of consequences in the spiritual area, but we've already indicated that sin opens the door into the family and until somebody closes that door uh, they're going to stay the demon's going to stay there uh, we told you about the the little boy and wanted to be a girl and so on due to the father's sin the father's the consequences of the father's sin was passed down to the child and so we need to uh, to deal with this Fred Dickinson will be here later Later in the week, and in his book, he says that of the several hundred people he has counseled, almost all of them had some ancestral sin that they had to, to deal with, and he will probably make more reference to that. So, again, I'm not going to spend a, a long time uh, dealing with uh, this ancestral area. It looks something like this, that when sin is committed, two things happen. You incur guilt before God, and you open the door to Satan into your life. That's what sin does. What ought to happen is that you confess the sin, receive forgiveness, and close the door. When that happens, you are free from the consequences of that sin, and your descendants will be free from at least the spiritual consequences. Now, the awful thing about sin is that that doesn't change the fact that if you've killed somebody, they're still dead. If you've harmed somebody physically, they're still harmed. If you said bad words, those words are still out there, and this is one of the awful things about sin, but... Uh, it does close the door to Satan, but if you don't do that, then the bondage will remain. And uh, that's what you will need to deal with in your ministering uh, to, to people. Uh, other grounds for attack are personal sin that we've been talking about, previous trauma that will be dealt with uh, in other lectures. But Satan loves to take advantage of trauma in your life. Anything that causes negative feelings, fear, anger, hate, uh, those kinds of things, he, he just loves to create strongholds out of them. And uh, that's a, a whole area that needs a lot of attention to dealing with. Curses, I was asked about, about uh, this issue of curses and how they work. Uh, the key biblical text here is uh, Proverbs 26.2, which says, as a fluttering sparrow and a darting swallow, so an undeserved curse does not come to rest. And the key issue there is what is deserved and undeserved. With the context of the Old Testament, uh, Jesus said to his people, I set before you the way of life and the way of death, blessing and cursing. Blessing if you trust and obey, curse if you don't trust and obey. 
in that context, the curse is getting the consequences of what you do without God's protection. God says, you trust me and obey me, and I'll be there for your spiritual protection. There will be blessing. If you don't trust and obey, do it your way, but you'll be responsible for the results. And that is a form of curse. That is to say, you're going to get what Satan wants to do in your life rather than what God wants to do. Now, there are maledictions where people actually speak evil against someone else. May you never have children. May your family always be divided, whatever kinds of things. And uh, those are like prayers to Satan. And again, if, if I am walking with God in trust and obedience, I don't need to fear those kinds of things. Uh, I have no doubt that I've had curses put on me by, by occultists. I was, I got a call from a pastor in Chicago once saying I have a young man here who says he was a Satanist and he was sent into our church to unsettle the church, cause problems in the church as part of his cult activity. Uh, and uh, instead of that, he's received Christ and become a Christian. Do you have any suggestions how I can disciple him? And when the young man heard him ask for Timothy Warner, he said, oh, we know that name. He's on our list. Well... Uh, we know that Satanists have lists of people that they would like to get rid of when they are able to who, because we help people come out of uh, the bondage that they uh, are in in the, those Satanist groups. Does that frighten me? No, I, I don't treat it lightly, but I don't live in fear of it because I'm a child of God. God's able to protect me. He put a hedge around Job. He can put a hedge around Tim Warner if, if I need that kind of protection. So we don't live in fear of curses, but neither do we risk not trusting and obeying because that's when the protection is lifted and we're saying to God, I'm going to do it my way instead of your way. So uh, curses do work, unfortunately, and uh, we need to be careful. Careless invasion of enemy territory. I need to explain that a little bit. You won't find that on most lists. I, I see it... Uh, primarily in the missionary context, but in these days it can apply in any context. I guess I first became aware of the difference in attitude here. Uh, Paul saying, I henceforth perceive we no man after the flesh. Uh, one of the first times was uh, I was in a quartet and we were singing our way to the West Coast for a conference and we had a program in a church in Reno, Nevada. And... Uh, I'd never been in a gambling casino, and we decided to go visit one. And they're fascinating places. There's roulette wheels spinning, and the blackjack dealers, and the one-armed bandits, and people putting coins. One lady, she had a handful of coins, and she was playing three one-armed bandits there, and she could tell she'd done that a lot. And kind of fascinating to watch her, perfectly coordinated, putting coins in the slots and pulling the the uh, levers. And then I said, you know, what's going on here? What are these people looking for? What are they finding? It's going to be like tomorrow morning because they've been here today. And suddenly it became a den of iniquity instead of a tourist place where you could look on with tourist eyes and just see it through sort of neutral touristy eyes. I looked at it through God's eyes and the whole whole thing changed. 